Hello, you are listening to the IFSEC Global Security in Focus podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with leading figures in the physical security industry to get to the heart of the profession. Welcome everyone to the sixth episode of the podcast. I'm your host, James Moore, the editor of IFSEC Global. We've got another fascinating chat for you over the next half an hour or so, so thanks for joining us. Regular listeners, welcome back. And for those who are new to the podcast, I definitely recommend having a listen to the previous episodes. We're now six episodes in, as I say, and it's fantastic to see the response we've been getting so far. I hope you're all enjoying listening to them as much as I'm enjoying doing them. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Gabriel Schneider, speaking to us all the way from Australia. Dr. Gav is an expert in human-based risk management and the psychology of risk as well as the creator of a concept called Presilience, which we find out all about. First though, I'll pass over to IFSEC Global's assistant editor, Rihanna Sexton, for the news. First up, residential security and electrical installers are set to capitalise on the growing demand for smart home products, according to a new report from the brands. The report, which surveyed 1,000 UK consumers with an age range between 18 to 65 in February 2022, revealed that over two-thirds of Brits are likely to purchase a smart home product in the next two years, and almost half would be more likely to purchase a home with smart technology installed. However, it seems security and electrical installers will need to support customers through the process, with a lack of product knowledge being a key barrier to homeowners purchasing technology, according to the report. Also in the news, a federally funded CCTV trial in two South Australian care homes where artificial intelligence was used to detect falls and screams produced more than 12,000 false incidents over a 12-month period, as journalist Ron Alaloof reports. An audit of the trial by PwC found that the AI technology was not yet sufficiently accurate at detecting incidents in a residential aged care setting. It went on to say that while the accuracy of the system improved over time as it was designed to, it did not achieve a level that would be acceptable to staff and management. Thanks Rihanna, and now on to the episodes. How do we get things better and improve processes continuously rather than just focus on stopping bad things from happening? Surely a question that everyone, not just within the security and risk management world, would like to know the answer to. Well, this is partly what Presilience is all about. It's a concept birthed by Dr. Gav, which has enabled his business, Risk to Solution, to be recognised as one of Australia's most innovative companies in recent years. It's about putting people at the forefront. And in this episode, Gav explains what he means by Presilience, how it can be applied in the real world to organisations, and the challenges of improving human decision-making, particularly in high-risk or emergency situations such as those that security professionals have to deal with on a regular basis. Dr. Gav is well known in the global risk management field and is regularly named to IFSEC Global's most influential in security awards. South African born, Gav is now CEO at the risk to solution group of companies, which focuses on delivering cutting edge solutions in many fields, including risk, resilience, intelligence and security, just to name a few. He was named RMIA Risk Consultant of the Year in 2019 and is the author of the book, Can I See Your Hands? A Guide to Situational Awareness, Personal Risk Management, Resilience and Security. Gav has also contributed to ISSEC Global several times and I'll put the link to his main article on resilience in the description of this episode. But we cover a lot over the next half an hour, so I'm not going to keep you from the conversation any longer. 
We start by asking Gav to introduce himself and his experience in the security and risk management sector. Thanks, James. Originally South African, started my security career literally on the front lines, training defensive tactics and close quarter combat to military police units and bodyguard in Africa. Then I got into close protection, which became my thing. I did my master's degree researching how to professionalize the close protection industry in South Africa, which was a comparative study between Australia, the UK, Israel and South Africa and what we could take from a trending perspective and had a very good experience with that. That actually became part of the national training standards in South Africa and we had some good uplift there. Through my protection career, I've had broad level of experience ranging from presidential protection details all the way down to you know high risk cases where people really were under threat. I broadened my career quite early and realized that Generalized security risk management is actually a skill set and vocation, and we should be looking at how the general structure works. So I did my ASA CPP, I think, in 2007, then moved to Australia. I got a, a scholarship to do my PhD here. I'd started my first business in Africa in 2000, which was a specialized security risk management business, which specialized security risk management manpower deployments, so only security managers or close protectors. We did training which we did corporate and government, a broad range of pieces there. And loosely at that stage, anything that wasn't operations or training, we called risk management, but that's evolved tremendously. I did my PhD in high consequence decision-making and training attached to use of force and became fascinated with decision-making and why people make so many bad decisions, even though we know better. That's kind of led to a journey. What I've built now in Australia together with a great team is Australia's most awarded integrated risk management business. So we have a security division, a safety division, a medical and health division, a cyber division, a risk and culture change division. And our whole goal is how do we integrate risk to enable our clients to mitigate downside but grab upside, which is kind of the birth of the concept of pre-resilience, which we've done pretty well and been quite well recognized for the idea of how do we get things better, not just try and stop bad stuff happening. So a career in the security industry seems to have gone through lots of different aspects of it from both being within it and sort of on the front line to an academic background as well. Just before we get onto the subject of resilience, because that's obviously something we want to touch upon quite heavily today. You mentioned the PhD about decision making. Why do people make bad decisions? <laughs> so this is probably the opportunity to insert a caveat that let's treat today as an introductory chat, because a topic like that is probably a three hour discussion. Yeah. But realistically... I think this is probably one of the gifts I've had in being both a practitioner and an academic. I love the term pracademic, where you do both, or scholar-practitioner, depends who you work with. But the ability to research something and understand why it happens and then test it in practice is a significant strength. Without going into too much detail, my fixation with this stuff really started with a few things. One of them was our phone in South Africa with our business there would often ring and it would be people who were really under threat. And they'd be going, money's no object, I need protection right now. And we had a standard process for that, which was usually four protectors and two vehicles, because you don't know what the threat is. We need people to cover 24 hours, et cetera. And all of a sudden, people would go from money's no object to, hey, can I just get away with one guy in a car? You know, literally in the space of 10 seconds, people had gone from money's no object to my life is worth one quarter of what you told me I need to be safe. So I kind of started on that journey back then. I think one of the things from a security perspective we forget is that most decisions, even though automation, AI, robotics, and the way all these things are coming into play, 
is actually reducing poor decision making. Ultimately, we're still in an era now where decision making is a combination of data and intelligence. They're using technology, but ultimately it usually comes down to somebody making a call. And humans are inevitably flawed in the way we make decisions. Why? Because we spend most of our time thinking that we can have some sort of scientific methodology, which I think the field of risk management is just the, the, the field of how do we make good decisions. Security is different because we're talking about threat, right? We're talking about somebody intentful who wants to do a bad thing. And when we're talking about that intent, I have to understand humans. So I think this is one of those missing ingredients that is not necessarily taught enough in the security industry. Our threat assessment experts and our intelligence experts spend a lot of time trying to understand humans. We should all be doing that. So to your point, humans are exceptionally flawed in the way we make decisions. Roughly 95% of our decisions are done intuitively using what Daniel Kahneman refers to, and he's a very well-known researcher in this area, as system one, our automatic automated decision-making. So 95% of our decisions we make reflexively. We very rarely stop, reflect, and improve that process. We very rarely question whether that's a good decision or not because we just do it automatically. So we don't spend the time to build good intuitive decision-making. That's the first part. Then the second part is we don't have, in many cases, the time, wisdom, or resources to engage what Kahneman refers to as system two or the thinking part of the mind. So very often, we're not training our intuitive decision-making, and then we switch on the analytical part at the wrong time, which slows us down or potentially bogs us down with too much data, and we don't make a better decision anyway. So that's almost guaranteed a topic for future discussion because there's so yeah. many pieces to it. But short story is humans are not great at decision-making. <laughs> yeah, really interesting, and it kind of ties into that world of, of you know how technology can play a role, I guess, in the security industry and how it can help make decisions easier or make decisions quicker. I guess that's really, realistically, when you get down to the nuts and bolts, the point of technology is, is to make our lives easier and make our decisions better. Going back to resilience, obviously, congratulations for this. You, you, I know you've been on the EFSEC Global Influencers list a couple of years now, and I, I believe a fair amount of this is to do with your work in the resilience sector as, as well as, as your day-to-day. -day. But when we say pre-resilience, what do you mean by it? And what is the difference between resilience and pre-resilience? Caveat again, if we had four hours, we could go into this in a lot of depth, but I'm going to give you the elevator view. This was an interesting journey for me because I had to go through a transition of, first I was a close protection expert. Then I had to become a generalized security expert and security consultant. Then I got into the world of risk and realized that most people in the world of risk management do not understand security risk well at all. In fact, the world of risk management is dominated primarily by insurance and financial risk management practices, and they don't understand the threat-centric modeling that we bring to the table. And very often, security professionals are not confident enough nor qualified enough to have robust discussions. So... We uh, won a contract with one of the universities here in 2015, and we had delivered a postgraduate program in the psychology of risk for the last six years. And that brought a few behavioral scientists into the mix. It brought business experts into the mix, and it brought a few hardcore academics into the mix. And realistically, we found a few things. So if you talk about the psychology of risk, risk is something that may happen. There's uncertainty to it. Psychology is the way we understand the human mind. So you put those two together and we go, I need to understand how people manage uncertainty. So originally we started with this idea of risk intelligence. Quick summary of that, and you'll see how this stuff comes together. We can get people with great IQ 
And we always want smart people, right? Then you get people with great EQ who are very good at working with others. We always want to hire people who have both, which depending on where you play in the security industry is not not often an easy thing to do, particularly with issues like manpower shortages in countries like Australia and New Zealand at the moment. But what we found is you could get really smart people, people who love working with other people, but they still make terrible decisions. So risk intelligence is the tool we need to build to drive great decision making. That was the first step in the puzzle. This is going back about five years ago. We sort of went, well, risk intelligence is not just about the risk part. In other words, the part that hasn't happened. It's also about what do we do when things do happen, when risks get realized. So that's the first segue. Risk and resilience, it drives me crazy when people separate them and go, they're not related. Risk is something that hasn't happened. When risk does get realized, you then need resilience to be able to overcome whatever happens as a result of that risk manifesting. And security is one of the best vocations for understanding the sequence. Almost all security practitioners and managers understand that their job doesn't end just because an incident happens. In fact, their job continues until the incident is resolved. And usually then there's another process of trying some level of proactive prevention to stop it happening again. That, believe it or not, is not a common practice in the greater world of risk management. We spend all this time on this idea of mitigation, but we don't spend that much time figuring out how these things intersect. So that led into the world of resilience for us. And we spent a lot of time looking at resilience. In fact, I brought in the guy who co-authored that article we wrote for you, Tony McGurk, who's really well known as a high performer in changing things within the fire space. And we, we puzzled about this for a long time because there are many resilience models. And most of those models have something around the idea of let's build back better or how do we build back better. But part of the problem with that is that's the part that gets ignored. And resilience, for the most part, has been dominated by our disaster response agencies. And most of them, believe it or not, are not fixated on prevention. They're fixated on response. And there's many reasons for that. Part of that is budget, power building. I get more resources for response. Ten years ago, I wrote an article with one of my professors around something we call the reactive security safety spending model. And for your listeners, I'm sure they live with this every day where mm-hmm. their organization or their clientele, if they're providing services to a client, have a clear risk, something bad could happen. They don't want to spend money on it. And then eventually that bad thing happens. So they throw money at it because there's enough resourcing, they can solve the problem. And because they've solved the problem, that bad thing doesn't happen again. So slowly there's this perception of, well, it's not happening. So why are we spending money on it? And they strip the budget away. And eventually the organization gets back to the point where it's vulnerable again and the cycle just repeats. Excuse me, just being direct, it's dumb. The perception that just because something hasn't happened now, I don't need to spend on it, you know, it, it's so short-sighted and naive. So that was the shift for us. We, we found two problems with the world of resilience primarily. The first is if we do a great job, bad stuff doesn't happen, right? Proactive prevention is generally the driver for almost all security measures. And trends like trying to turn security initiatives into cost-saving initiatives or even profit-generating initiatives have helped a lot with that piece. It's not that common, right? When you cross over to safety risk, when you cross over to cyber risk, when you cross over into financial risk, people talk a lot about it. But even the most commonly used model for risk management in the financial service sector is called the three lines of defense got nothing to do with proactive prevention. We're saying bad stuff's going to happen. How do we defend? It's a terrible descriptor. 
So that was the first part. So when we started with resilience, originally it was this idea of proactive resilience. We then realized it was so much more. And I'm so happy with how this is evolving. Even the article we wrote for you, it's quite out of date now in terms of what we've been learning. And this is the next piece. One of the challenges we've got with modern resilience, and I, I'm sure many of your listeners might not watch the video of this, but for those who do, if you kind of look at my hands on your screen and you imagine my hand that's vertical as a line of disruption, organization is traveling along, it hits this line of disruption, whatever that could be, a flood, a fire, a terrorist attack. And most resilience modeling is how quickly can we get through it, around it, and back to where we were going. The yeah. question you have to ask, particularly post-COVID in a world that is literally volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous just by definition, is who said you were going the right way anyway? And it's been an interesting intersection for me. I, I did a course through Harvard a few years ago on disruptive innovation. And one of the things that's always stuck with me is how rarely strategic planning is actually implemented. So all these organizations spend all this time on three to five year plans and they never use them or fail to implement them effectively. So that's where the, uh, the second part of the resilience piece came in, which is how do we build innovation and continuous improvement into our cycle? So where we've landed now is actually a three-tier process. First is compliance. If you can't even do the stuff you need to do to stay out of jail, then worry about resilience and pre-resilience. You're putting your effort in the wrong place. Once we can do compliance, you can't comply your way to success. You're also very unlikely to comply your way to mitigation because our opposition are smart and they know you are doing what you legally have to do. So they'll figure out how to work around that. Anybody who's dealt with criminal syndicates know how uh, adaptive and evolutionary they can be in finding the gaps. So most organizations can then move to the state of resilience where they know that compliance isn't enough. They need to go, when our compliance systems fail, what do we need to have to be able to respond and recover? So if you think of it from an organizational perspective, having a crisis management team, having incident response teams, having lessons learned reviews, those are all good things in the resilience space. The problem that we find is a lot of organizations apply those things, but they apply them with a compliance mindset of only have to do this to tick the box, as opposed to actually I'm training for this game. I'm training for a big match. I'm training for something that could take my business or my people out. Therefore, this training is really important or these systems we build or these processes we build or the software we acquire, it actually is critically important for when bad stuff happens. So... Once you can get the compliance and resilience working, you can then start to move to the pre-resilience phase, which, which is that opportunity centrism, proactive prevention. And realistically, it's the combination of the three that get high performance. And people often look at what we've built. We've integrated risk, resilience, and high performance into a pack and called it pre-resilience. But if we can't get leadership and high performance as part of what we're doing, the stuff doesn't work. Hello, listeners. Did you know that IFSEC Global also produces exclusive reports, ebooks, and white papers for the security and fire industry? Well, you do now. Want to explore the latest trends in the physical access control market? Or how AI is being used in video surveillance systems for so much more than just security? Or what about wrapping your head around the latest legislation in the fire safety sector? Well, look no more. Simply head over to ifsecglobal.com resources to download the latest reports from our website. Let's get back to the discussion. 
For the second half, we begin by asking Gav that all-important question for theoretical conversations. How can the concept of resilience actually be applied day-to-day for security organizations or departments? We have a bunch of tools we've now built. So I think when we wrote the article for you, we were figuring out how to teach this, how to apply it, how to use it. We've now actually applied it in practice in quite a few places, including my own business. We've also got a nationally recognized skills program, a graduate certificate and graduate diploma in this stuff. So our aim is to train and certify people to take this back to their organizations and use it. And I'll explain to you how that'll work shortly. What is important is in our resilience modeling, there are two key pillars. One is people, the other is process. And they have to be linked together by common purpose, corporate values, organizational mission, and something we call dynamic risk equilibrium, which is a shifting piece. So the problem with this stuff is you can't set and forget it, which makes it kind of hard. But in the world we live in, you can't set and forget almost anything. And we find organizations that we consult to, the ones that are most vulnerable are the ones who think they have everything squared away and everything is perfect for them. They are usually the ones who are either blind to what's happening around them or set for some pain as soon as something goes wrong. So to answer your question around how can security practitioners do this, step one for me is get the knowledge. Right, so we've got our Brazilian short courses. There's the other stuff that we're doing, or you can just read up on it, uh, Brazilians.info. We've actually built a Brazilians maturity model that looks at compliance, resilience, and Brazilians. And there's a ton of resources on there for free that people can look at. When you enroll in our programs, we've also got, you know, I think there's a, it's like an 80 page manual and monograph that comes with it, plus tools and a whole bunch of other things you can use. But realistically, And this is an interesting segue. People often look at me like my background is martial arts and self-defense. I've had a few people go, okay, Gav, you've done a PhD, you've done this, you've done that, you've run businesses, but ultimately what's a guy who likes kicking, punching and shooting doing with cultural change? And the truth of it is, and this is something really important for your listeners, you could implement the best technological solution. You could implement the best cyber security mitigation plan. You could implement the most effective policy framework or access control system. If your people don't get it, don't understand why and are not part of the process, they just find ways around it or they resent you for doing that. So it's a really important piece that we often miss when we look at the way we apply any sort of solution. And that's the reason I always give back. We were very lucky. A big client of ours back in South Africa, Standard Bank, the largest emerging market bank in the world, we ran a project with them. We trained 23,000 people for them over three years and took their culture from switched off to switched on. And there are a few case studies on that. So if people want, they feel free to email me. I'll share that. But what we found was a few things that are really important. And realistically, even in South Africa, which is a high-risk, high-crime environment, where your average punter is pretty aware that bad stuff happens, the average person didn't know what to do to keep themselves and their family safe. So one of the things we have to try and do is bring people on the journey with us. It's a challenge because most people get into security because as David Grossman talks about it, there's a sheepdog driver inside them. They want to be protective in nature. Doesn't necessarily mean that they properly get how to engage people, align that with systems and process, do policy, integrate technology, and then continuously monitor and update. It's a very hard integrated skill set to get right. But to your point, I've become a little more cynical with this stuff over the last few years because um, when we were training our psychology of risk graduates, 
we have people leave the program so enthused and then they go back to their organizations to try and implement change and get shot down. We're living in a very weird era where a combination of industrial age thinking with hyper-connected artificial intelligence-based technology that is so far ahead of this side that we often forget that the two need to run together. So we've got this combination of outdated governance with agility. A good example of that, I spoke at a conference last week. Luckily for me, security people are my people. I love talking to them. It was a room of 300 security managers. And I asked the question, how many of you have plugged AI into your daily operations? And out of the 300, maybe 10 put their hands up. And my response was, who uses Google? Like we use AI all the time. The fact that you haven't necessarily plugged it in with some sort of you know, recognition type software in your CCTV system doesn't mean you're not using it. We landed up doing a study for the Australian security industry, which was released last year. We highlighted a few things. And one of them is this, and I know it's a buzzword, and every time I say it, I feel bad, but it is the truth. We are in a process of convergence. Conventional mm-hmm. solutions like security manpower have to converge with cyber risk, have to converge with technological solutions or we're too vulnerable. So to answer your question, step one for me is education and understanding. I don't suggest people tinker with the stuff too hard until they understand the basics. You can get the basics. We run a skills program that's four hours a week for four weeks. Quick, light, virtual, online. It gives the basics. And it also, we've trademarked and patented some of the methodology. It authorizes people to use it in their own organization or for -for not-for-profit purposes. So I want this out there. I want as many Brazilian practitioners as we can get. And I think the security industry is well-placed for that. The challenge we've got is our own perceptual limitation. And trust me, if a guy like me can go from punching, kicking, and strangling people for a living, okay, to running five companies and having an academic career, we shouldn't be putting limitations on security professionals. We have so much more to offer the market than we are used for. We just need to own it. That's a really good point. And it's something that became really obvious, I think, in COVID pandemic security professionals, whether they'd be security officers on the front line outside supermarkets to the risk management heads and user organizations, there was sort of an obvious need for them. And they suddenly stepped up to the plate. And I don't think the the wider public recognized how important they were. And I also don't think the security industry itself recognized the importance of the people skills that go into security. And obviously that leads in well to your point about the security industry can do so much more than what it's used for. It's 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 got a lot of skills. It takes a lot of skills to do what, it, you know, you've got, you got people skills, you've got an understanding of technology, and then that, that facet of being able to combine them both and being able to sort of bring that culture and embed that culture within within your within your organization, not just maybe in the security team, but also throughout. And as you say, it's something that they're doing, you know, that cyber has to do a lot of now because it's so easy for, for threat vectors to get in through malicious emails. And, you know, that can affect anyone from the administrative assistant to the CEO. And you've got to try and build that that culture. And I guess that's a, that's a big part of that Brazilian's model. Well, well, let's just explore that for a second, because you've hit on something really important. Traditionally, depending on the size of the organization, but in most organizations, it's a, a perception that human resources owns culture which is insane. Like who can own culture? Culture is the sum total of all the behaviors, attitudes, and activities that come together to create an output. So realistically, we've got to be very careful when we get into these discussions around, hey, this is security culture or that cyber security culture 
or that's resilience culture. Culture is culture, right? Some total of the way people act, think, and behave collectively. So when we start looking at things like security culture, you know, often metrics like people are wearing their passes, people change their passwords. Um, we've had no tailgating, for example, through access control. Those become the metrics. And to a degree, there's use in that, right? Because those are indicators of behavior. But one of the things I think we really need to remind ourselves that, you know, one of the biggest challenges we all face is insider risk and insider threat. And I'm very passionate about this point. The very most effective solution mitigation strategy we can have to tackle insider risk is to have a great place to work for with people who trust each other and want to be there. The more fear-based we make it, the more consequence-based we make it, the more you need resources to police and enforce. And if you don't have those resources to police and enforce, then basically you're setting yourself up for failure. And if we have to police and enforce, we then drive a culture of negativity as opposed to proactive prevention. So it's the opposite of resilience, right? We've got a compliance-based culture where people hate doing stuff, but they do it because they have to so they don't get in trouble. What we want is people going, I know that wearing my security pass enables people to know I belong and will also enable a security team to identify people who don't belong. Therefore, I'm contributing to the readiness and vigilance of our organization. So part of what we've got to do is change our thinking on this stuff. And simply put, people are the biggest problem. They're also the biggest enabler. So if you view them as a problem to overcome, you're going to be stuck. You need massive budget and massive compliance enforcement capability, and you will never get high performance. You'll get adequate performance, and that would be your measure. All the research into engaged staff show us that engaged people who care about what they do and care about where they work and care about each other can be up to 50 to 100% more productive than non-engaged staff. So just think about that for a second. If you want your team to perform better, and you can double their outputs or at least give yourself another 50%. It's like hiring another half of your workforce if they want to be there and really want to work and align. So there's a direct payoff on this stuff, but it does take a little bit of a shift in thinking. We could talk about this all day, and I, I think it's, it's super interesting. And I think that, it's a, as you say, a different way of thinking for security professionals and risk managers is, is, is going to be, it probably became really important during before and just during the pandemic. And now they're beginning to see the 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 benefits of if they have gone about that way of, do, of doing things. But on that topic of, you know, you mentioned the insider threat and this kind of stuff, that's that's something that we're, you know, the, one of the trends that people have picked up on as I've been talking to them throughout this podcast series. Just a quick overview from your side. What do you believe uh, maybe sort of two or three of the major sort of topics of interest or, or trending topics in physical security at the moment, maybe predominantly in, in, the, in the sort of, APAC region compared to the UK slash Europe, if, if you have any of those, but just generally, what are you seeing at the moment? Sure. I have plenty of those. So the challenge is keeping them shorter. So I yeah. think the, the first one is from an Australian, New Zealand perspective, we're islands and we're comparatively far away from everything. So there's been a perception here that risk is lower because we control our borders. We've got low population. Cyber threat doesn't care about that and manifests wherever. So I think there's a big awakening that has to happen here that our security mindset has to change. We've seen this manifesting now. We've got amendments to our security of critical infrastructure legislation. We've got expansion of those pieces. We've got mandatory positive reporting requirements for critical infrastructure owners. So I see the shift and the acceptance of risk being significant. 
From an Australian perspective, it's also interesting to note that our intelligence agencies are more and more focusing on foreign interference as a driver, not just terrorism as the primary threat. You know, a lot of times the average operator goes, hey, that won't affect me. Why would, you know, and we won't name the relevant states, but everybody in the security game knows who we're talking about. You know, why would they target me? I just run a power station. I run a water treatment plant. I run a bank. I run a university. But we're seeing this happen all the time. And to your point about converged attack methodology, most cyber attacks are sophisticated now and they include a physical component to them if they can't get in virtually. Most physical attacks include some sort of cyber reconnaissance before a physical attack happens in an integrated world. And we need to change the way we think about the way we tackle these risks. The next big trend that we're seeing a lot of is increased antisocial behavior and violence. You know, I'd kind of caveat that going, somebody who grew up in South Africa with a lot of violence around us all the time, my perception of violence is significantly different to people in first world countries that haven't been exposed to that. I'm seeing our clientele and people who have never had to think about occupational violence and aggression management, it's now creeping its way up. It's not getting the profile it should. It should be much higher, but realistically, that's more because people think it's a safety risk, not a security risk, and their systems are not sophisticated enough to go, actually, it's both. So how do we manage integrated risk as opposed to just siloing it? I don't think that's going to go away. And I think we're three to five years away from that finding a logical resolution. I'm happy to back that up academically too, because lockdowns from a security perspective, you ask any counterterrorism expert around radicalization processes, and they'll go, we always look for people that are isolated have a limited social network, feel disconnected, and are easily influenced. Well, we, we lock people up for, in some places, two years. And I think we're very naive if we think that our opposition weren't radicalizing people during that time, number one. Number two, people stayed at home and watched The Walking Dead and all sorts of other violent TV shows. You know, for the average well-adjusted person, not an issue. But for somebody who's already got violent tendencies or is feeling disconnected from society, it takes their acceptance of violence, and it normalizes it. So there's lots of reasons behind it. We could probably do a whole podcast episode just on that. But brace yourselves. If your country had significant lockdowns, increased antisocial trends and violence is going to be here for a, for a while. It's not just going to go away quickly. And this is a space that security experts are very well placed to assist with. The mitigation of that risk is not a one-dimensional piece. It's quite an integrated piece um, we've got a study that's freely available if people want info on that. Happy to link to that too. I think this convergence aspect is going gonna, is gonna to continue in a way that we haven't necessarily thought out very well. So a lot of times when we talk about convergence, people are thinking, well, I integrate electronic security with guarding. It's so much more now. When we did the study into the Australian security industry, we, we found that cyber was continually being brought up as a skill set that security experts need to know how to manage. And so much so that I went back to university. I've just finished a year studying cybersecurity. I've launched a cybersecurity division in our business. And if you are a security practitioner, whether you're physical, electronic, electronic security practitioners have an advantage. It's much easier for them to cross over into cyber. But cyber is an area that's been dominated by RCT, not security people. Okay, so the people who've become experts in cybersecurity were experts in IT first. Yeah. Not experts in security first. And definitely got to get more of our conventional security 
practitioners, whether it's electronic or physical, whether you're a guard or an installer, you should be learning cybersecurity and understanding how to integrate it into your, into your trade. Welcome back, and our thanks to Dr. Gabriel Schneider there for joining us. What a super interesting and deep conversation that was, and I really appreciate the insight that Gab provided us with, especially as he had to stay up so late to uh, to supply us with it, bearing in mind the time differences between the UK and Australia. Hopefully you found the same while listening. Lots of talking points, as I'm sure you can imagine, although particularly enjoyed the early discussion around human decision-making. We make choices and decisions every day, very often without even thinking about it. But I always find it fascinating how two people can be presented with what is essentially the same decision, but make very different choices, which can result in very different outcomes. There's a constant argument for more data and analytics in the security industry provided by all the technology that's now available. But ultimately, it can only really be effective if it can help make our decisions more informed without bogging us down. The subject of resilience and business continuity has probably never been more appropriate to discuss than in the last few years. Geopolitical events and uh, that pandemic, I guess, made it clear that organizations and security teams should always be thinking about how risk and resilience are intertwined and how they're related to each other, as Gav explained. While the concept of resilience is that next step, shifting that focus to the people managing and responding to risk rather than the strategy itself and enhancing their skill sets to make them more agile, adaptable, and flexible. It's also great to hear Gav's thoughts on the key trends in the security industry at the moment. Really interesting to hear the realization that security mindsets have to change to deal with new risks, such as the cyber threat, particularly for the critical infrastructure sector. We've seen reports from the US about attacks on there, and no doubt that it's going to continue, unfortunately. Also concerning to hear about the growth of occupational violence too, uh, one of the many potential unintended consequences of lockdowns around the world and something that we're probably going to be dealing with over the next few years. If you'd like to find out a bit more about resilience and everything that was discussed in today's episode, we've popped a few links in the description of this podcast episode and no doubt Gav will also be happy to answer any questions if you want to reach out to him on LinkedIn or through his company Risk2 Solution. But that's all from this episode of the Security in Focus podcast. This has been a podcast from IFSEC Global. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and sign up to our newsletter to keep up with all the latest in the industry. Thanks for listening and see you next time.